If you have a Bible, we're in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. That's the very first book there. It's on the screens for you if you don't have it. Um, We are starting a new series today um, called um, God is with me on the life of Joseph. And I think if Joseph had written an autobiography, and when I say Joseph, I'm not talking Joseph, husband of Mary, earthly adoptive father of Jesus. I'm talking Joseph, um, great-grandson of Abraham, uh, the son of Jacob or Israel. Um, And his life is taken up there in Genesis 37 through 50. We have his life story. And I think if he had written an autobiography, if he had written a, a memoir, it would have maybe been titled, God is with me. What would your autobiography, what would your memoir be titled? I read some this week of some of the, uh, some well-known, some not so well-known, but I found were interesting autobiography titles. Uh, Start on the spiritual side, right? St. Augustine called his The Confessions of St. Augustine. Um, Steve Martin, Steve Martin, the comedian. His is called Born Standing Up. Pretty creative title for a stand-up comedian. (laughs) Catherine Hepburn. Some of us remember Catherine Hepburn. Some of us don't remember Catherine Hepburn. Hers was me, so not necessarily the most creative um, there. Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. Jay Leno, back on the comedy side of things, Leading with My Chin. That's one of my favorites, Leading with My Chin. And my favorite is David Hasselhoff's. You know David Hasselhoff? (laughs) Knight Rider is how I remember David Hasselhoff. Um, Some of you maybe remember him for Baywatch. Shame on you. Um, but <laughs> night rider. Um, David Hasselhoff's was don't hassle the Hoff. And so <laughs> it was my favorite. What would be yours? What would sum your life up? I think Joseph's would be God is with me. That is in essence the theme of his life, that God was with Joseph. In fact, in Acts 17, Stephen, the first martyr in the church, is being murdered for his faith or is about to be murdered for his faith, rather. Not being murdered for his faith yet. And be martyred. And he's preaching his last sermon. And he's giving a running account of Israel's history. And he says in Acts 7, verses 9 through 10, about the patriarchs, he says they were jealous of Joseph. That's his brothers. And they sold him to Egypt. But God was, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions. And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. That is a nice summary of the life of Joseph. Joseph's story is a story filled with brokenness, and it's a story filled with pain and betrayal, temptation, success, and being forgotten, being forsaken, and at the same time being exalted. It's like a made-for-TV movie. It's like a miniseries or something on NBC. It's this, this incredible epic that takes place in his life. And in the midst of Joseph's life, in the bad times and in the good times, God is at work. That's the theme. God is present and actively working to do something in the life of his people. In Genesis 39, verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and verse 23, the writer tells us that God was with Joseph. That is the theme. That is the big takeaway. So what's the big takeaway from Joseph's life and over this series the next several weeks? It was that God was with Joseph. Um, The Bible is very clear that that's the theme. He wasn't simply hanging out with Joseph. He was at work and even showing Joseph favor in his life. He was with Joseph in a special way to accomplish his purposes. Now Joseph is going to suffer unjustly. But in the end, God is going to work through that situation to bring about the salvation 
of many people. In the New Testament, we learn that though believers go through many trials, we go through temptations, we go through pain and suffering, that ultimately God is with us and he's at work in our lives for our good. Romans 8, 28, right? He is working to make, to make sure that we become more like Christ and to use us in his redemptive purposes and his redemptive plan. Have you ever wondered, though, even as a believer, is God really with me in this moment? Have you ever wondered what that should mean for your life? See, even believers experience the pain, suffering, temptation, success, and at the same time setbacks that everybody else does. Is it possible, though, that God works in and through all these circumstances to form us and to mold us into the people he wants us to be? I believe it is. To accomplish his redemptive purpose in our lives. So let's see over the next several weeks what we can learn through Joseph's story and how it ties into the, the grander story of God and what does it mean for our personal stories because it has great impact, I believe, for us. So we start in Genesis 37. We're going to learn that God is with us and at work even when we can't see or feel or maybe even sense him at work. Pastor Tim Keller addressed this chapter as the hiddenness of God. I think that's a good way to address it. God is not mentioned by name in the entire chapter of Genesis 37, but he is very present and at work. So look with me at Genesis 37. We're going to kind of work our way through the chapter. We're not going to read all of it. We're going to read most of it. And I'm going to kind of stop and explain for a while as we go and then give us some big takeaways, uh, some things we need to hold on to when maybe that question pops into your mind, where is God? Where is God in this moment? So look with me at Genesis 37. We're going to start in verse 2. It says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, his other name, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, this is an important place for us to pause for a while and kind of give some background and catch everything up. Uh, as you can see, just in the first few verses here, we're learning something about Joseph, and that is his family is messed up. This is not the way family is supposed to operate. A favorite child that everybody else knows is the favorite child. A situation where brothers hate someone so much they cannot even speak peacefully to him. It's a bad situation. Now, a little background on Joseph. Joseph is the great-grandson, as I mentioned, of Abraham. There was Abraham that God gave the promise to, right, of making him a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation, God told him. All, all the earth is going to be blessed because of you, he told him. And then there was his son, Isaac. The promise came through Isaac. And I, the promise followed him to Jacob, who was also known as Israel. His name was changed to Israel, in which the, we get the nation Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel, who are his 12 sons, of whom Joseph is one. So Jacob is Joseph's dad. Isaac is his granddaddy. And Abraham is his great-grandpa. And Jacob, his daddy, when he grew up and left the house, he went off and fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And he worked for her brother, Laban, for seven years to earn the right to marry Rachel. But he got deceived in the end and ended up marrying her sister, Leah, instead. He pulled the old switcheroo on him, okay? Not something that would be easy to pull off in our day, but in their day of marriages, this was a little bit different. 
he then had to agree to work another seven years to marry Rachel. So always in the Old Testament, you see these situations where you end up with multiple wives, and that's what—that's the big elephant in the room there. Some of you are already thinking, wait a second. So this Israel, Jacob, the father, he had two wives. Well, he ends up with like more than two. But yeah, he has these two wives, and it's a mess. In the Old Testament, when you see that picture, you see this multiple wives pictured kind of situation at times in some of these patriarchs' lives, it's always a mess because they have departed from God's design and God's purpose, and it's... And it just wreaks havoc in their lives. It's, it's never a good thing. It's never, never clean and tidy. They're rebelling against God's design. But yes, so now he's married to Rachel and he's married to Leah. Now he loves Rachel the most. That's, his, that's the one he worked 14 years to marry. The story goes that Leah, though, has children before Rachel. And Rachel gets frustrated and has Jacob sleep with her servant to have children on her behalf. Then Leah does the same thing to keep up. Finally, after years, Rachel has a son named Joseph. Then she has another son named Benjamin, but she dies in childbirth. So Joseph is the oldest son of Rachel. And Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. (laughs) The one he loves. The girl he waited years to marry. Worked years to marry. And Joseph is the son he waited to have from her for years. Her oldest, who was born to him late in life much like Benjamin, his little brother, Joseph is his favorite. Because Rachel is his favorite. And imagine the mess that was his home. You've got ten brothers, not counting sisters, just the ten brothers that hate Joseph. And they're half-brothers to him, okay, other than Benjamin. Their moms are not their favorite. They're not the favorite. Their moms are... They feel kind of like outcasts too. You see them mentioned over here, Bill Hunt, Zilpa, and you've got, um, you've got um, Leah. And they kind of feel like second-class citizens to Rachel, the favorite. And each of these brothers belong to Leah or they belong to one of the servants, but they do not belong to Rachel. And everyone, even Leah, knew that Rachel was Jacob's favorite. And if you read the narrative in Genesis, it's very clear that even Leah understands her position in all this. And the young 17-year-old Joseph, who would have gotten the bigger Christmas presents, they wouldn't have been doing Christmas presents, but you get the point, the bigger bedroom, the later curfew, right? The bigger plate of food, the extra time with dad. They hate him. They hate him because the favoritism is obvious. And so the whole family's a mess. They can't even speak to him. We're going to see in a minute they're going to want to kill him. And the whole mess is created by one person, Jacob. This is his fault. He made the mess. And in the midst of this environment, Joseph brings home a bad report to his father, we read, of his brothers, of some of his brothers. He tattles on them. Now, they may have needed to be tattled on. They might have been doing something horrible. Who knows what they did? But it presents Joseph as kind of being more righteous than they. Maybe throughout the story, we're going to see that he was. But at the same time, maybe he actually viewed himself that way. We don't really know. The, 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 The Genesis kind of leaves some of this open to interpretation. But... The point is this, gasoline is being thrown on a fire. They already hate you, and now you're paddling on them. So now they really hate you. And on top of all this, Jacob gives Joseph a visible reminder of his love for him, what we know as the coat of many colors, likely a long coat with long sleeves, a sign of his love and approval, and his favorite status. And that was kind of an unusual thing. As one author I read this week talked about, you didn't wear that kind of thing to work in. They wore short sleeves and short tunics because they were out doing shepherding work. And it was almost like 
it was being communicated that Joseph's not like you because he doesn't even have to dress like you like a common worker. He's got this special fancy jacket. So you just kind of imagine all the other sons are in workers' clothes and you got the one son that just walks around in the tux all day that his dad bought him. Kind of sends a message. And the coat was a daily reminder that Jacob loved Joseph the most. And Jacob meant for it to be that way. And this created a situation where the brothers grew in jealousy and animosity and more and more envious. And this hatred boiled over. And there are some life lessons, obviously, in those first few verses about what favoritism and jealousy can do in a family. If you favor one of your kids over the others, you're inviting chaos, just like Jacob did, into your family. Jealousy and envy are destructive forces in any relationship. You, you can't love people and envy people and be jealous. Jealousy and envy require us to take from people and desire to take from people. Love requires us, we know from the Bible, to give and to sacrifice. So you can't do both. Now look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. They already hated him. And now he's dreaming things that have them bowing down to him, and these dreams didn't need much interpretation, okay? I'm no dream interpreter, but I've got this one figured out. They clearly portray Joseph in a way of exaltation over his brothers and even his entire family. Even Jacob's catching on. And after the second dream, Jacob rebukes him. But notice it says he kept it in mind. Why is he keeping it in mind? Because dreams were a way that God's people were used to communicating with God, even in Genesis. God would communicate to his people through those things. And Jacob knew this. And if you know the story, you know this was in fact prophetic dreams. His family would be in need of him. That's where the story is headed. And his brothers are going to bow down before him. That's where the stories are headed. He is going to be exalted. That is where the story is headed. But the brothers' jealousy is fueled more and more by these dreams. And as one scholar put it, they were likely fearful that Jacob is going to give him the right to the firstborn. Now, why would they think that? Because he treated him like the firstborn. Because he was the firstborn of the wife he loved the most. So what does he do? He gives him a jacket, a coat, he, he, a many colors. He treats him differently. He loves him more. He makes it very obvious. And in the Old Testament and in Jewish culture, being the firstborn was a big deal. You got all the rights and the privileges. You got the family farm, so to speak, right? You, you, got, you were big daddy when, when dad passes away. You, you were large and in charge. It was a big deal to be the firstborn. And here's what they know about their daddy. Their daddy got to be the firstborn without being the firstborn. Because he deceived his father and he took it. Jacob had taken the blessing of the firstborn from his brother Esau, his twin, but he was born second. Jacob deceived his father Isaac and took that, that blessing. He took his, and he also he deceived Esau and took his birthright. And they may fear now he will 
give this blessing of the firstborn and that he will give this birthright over to Joseph, even though Reuben is the oldest son in the family. In fact, Reuben will not receive the firstborn blessing, as we're going to find out later in the story. It's ultimately going to pass to Judah is where the scepter will not pass and where the, the line of the Messiah is going to come. But at this point in history, God is working through Joseph to protect his people. Look at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are past, where, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. Verse 17. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So he sent out on a mission by his father. The brothers were out working, and he sent the check to make sure they're okay. Joseph can't find them, and mysteriously a man is there who knows exactly where they are and steers them toward his brothers. Now it says a lot that he wasn't out working with his brothers. He's 17. He's old enough to work. But now he's sent out to check on them, right? Because they are kind of in a dangerous er territory. They, were, they had went out to Shechem. That is, if you go back in Genesis, one of their sisters is defiled by some people, and they go and they kill all these people that defile their sister. Well, that happened around Shechem. So it's kind of a dangerous area for these boys to be messing around in. And so he's a little worried about him, so he sends, sends his son Joseph out to, out to check on him. Now, verses 18 to 24, I'm not going to read that, but let me summarize by saying this. Here's what happens. Joseph is on his way to his brothers, and they see him coming from a long way off, and they make a plan to kill him because they hate him, and they think, this is, we're out, far away from home. This is our chance. That's how much they hated him. They wanted him dead. And Reuben, the oldest, hears the plan, and he makes a plan to save him. Maybe he thinks he can get back good graces with his dad if he does this. He may hate him, but he doesn't want to kill him. And his plan is to throw him in a big pit that they found instead, just leave him there. Maybe he dies, but it's not like we personally murdered him is what he's thinking. He's thinking, I don't know, manslaughter is better than murder or something. I don't know what the deal is. But they capture Joseph, strip him of his robe, and they throw him in what the Bible calls a waterless pit. In other words, it hurt. Verse 25 says, then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Galeed with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brother, What profit, brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. Remember, this is the one whose idea it was to put him in the pit because he wanted to rescue him and take him back to his father. And he returned to his, he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He knows he's the oldest. He's going to be held responsible. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. 
Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. So, that's 30, chapter 37 of Genesis. Now, Joseph is in the pit, and Judah gets the idea, as, as some Ishmaelites are coming by, that they can get rid of him and make some money in the process by selling him as a slave. And so then they set out to deceive their father. Scholars have pointed out that Jacob... Um, years before had deceived his father by pretending to be Esau. We spoke of that. But when he did so, he did so by wearing Esau's cloak and covering his arms with skin of two goats. Here, all these years later, his sons are now deceiving their father with their brother's cloak, covering it in goat's blood. You do, in fact, reap what you sow many times. This family is broken. Deception and sibling rivalry just runs deep for generations in this family. And one of the main points of the Joseph story is to explain how God's people end up in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. We know that. That's why we get the book of Exodus, right? And the deliverance and Moses and all that happens. Well, they, this is where it happens. The journey into Egypt begins as salvation because we're going to find out, spoiler alert, a famine is coming and they're going to need food and they're going to get it from Egypt because of what God's going to do through Joseph. And that's how they end up in Egypt. They're going to move that way. Then they're going to end up slaves. As we step back from this story, at this point it's very dark. It does not paint the people of God at this point in a very favorable light. It's not a good look for Israel and his family. And what will become of Joseph? Well, we know good things are to come, but through more trials are to come. But God is at work. We can't see him. It's not even spelled out in the story. His name is not mentioned in chapter 37. And if the story ended right there, there would be so much we wouldn't know and we would be very confused about what's going on. But it doesn't end there. But we can learn some things about how God is with his people even when things are seemingly falling apart. And we might be tempted to ask, God, where are you from this story? So three takeaways for us to hold on to when we're tempted to ask that question. Number one, God works in and through broken situations. That, that, that is, just, that is a, an attribute. That is something we see throughout Genesis to Revelation. Throughout the Bible, God works through broken, in and through broken situations. This is the story of God's people, the chosen people of God, and it's riddled with brokenness. It's a key story, and the grand narrative of Scripture and what God's doing in the world has ramifications even for our lives thousands of years later, and it's riddled with brokenness. You have a family with a dad that plays favorites, brothers that hate their little brother, filled with jealousy, considering murder, selling him like property to be a slave, and then lying to their dad making him think his son's dead. It's a twisted, messed up story. It's like a soap opera. Remember those? This is very soap opera-like. Deception, sibling rivalry, somebody's dead. <gasps> no, they're not. Right? It's like a soap opera. It could run five days a week at noon somewhere, right? It, it, that's what it looks like. And the truth is, all of our lives and all of our families are somewhat messed up and broken. And we have our soap opera moments. 
This is their soap opera moment. But God doesn't run away from messed up families. He doesn't run away from messed up situations. He doesn't run away from brokenness. He can work in and through broken situations. Just, just think about our families for a second. Every family has brokenness in it. Like Jacob, you are not the perfect parent. No matter how hard you try, you will not get it right every time. You may be a better father or mother, better parent than Jacob was, but you're not a perfect one. You'll mess up. And at times your kids may even think you're playing favorites. And at times you may do so, but you shouldn't. And like the brothers, you are not the perfect sibling or the perfect friend. You've been jealous. You've been envious. You feared someone else getting attention you wanted or felt you deserved. And just like those brothers, every human heart is capable of hatred and even murder. And like Joseph, you may have suffered at the hands of others, maybe even unjustly, been mistreated, misunderstood, outcast. We can all relate in our families and in our lives to this story and find ourselves in it. And the good news of the Bible is God works in broken families. He works in broken people. He works in and through broken situations. He's going to use this messed up family in it, and particularly Judah's line. Judah, who came up with the grand sell my brother into slavery idea to bring the Messiah into the world. Think about that. Messiah is coming through his line. God's not done with Judah. And by the end, he's going to reconcile with his brother. Well, listen, God's not done with you either. Whatever your broken situation might be, listen, child of God, God can work in and through your life. God's not scared off by you. You can't run him off like that. And maybe, or maybe like Joseph, you feel betrayed and hurt by others. You feel like some things that have happened to you that you don't deserve. Or maybe there's some things that you, you did contribute to, and you know it. But God sees you in your pain is the point, and every child of God needs to know God is with you and He is working even if others forsake you. God works in and through broken situations. The very thing you may think, that you may interpret as a sign that God is not paying attention to you. God is working even in that moment. If you love God, been called according to his purpose, right? He is working even in that moment for your good, for his glory. There is no situation or circumstance that is too far from the providential hand of God. Your scary circumstance, your broken situation cannot outrun providence. And if you learn nothing else, know this. This story is not primarily about the faithfulness of Joseph. This is a story of the faithfulness of God. It's about God's goodness more than Joseph's goodness. Joseph was faithful and Joseph did good things, but it was because God was with Joseph. And you too can walk with God and make good choices even in difficult, broken situations because in Christ Jesus, God is with you. Number two, God's hand is at times unseen in our lives. It's unseen to us at times. At times we, we, we just can't maybe even sense or know we feel like. But sometimes we can feel alone. God's hand was not seen by Joseph at this time. He likely wasn't sure what was going on. I imagine when he got tossed into that pit by his brothers, he was very surprised. And Jacob was very surprised. How do I know? Because he's sitting there. They would never have orchestrated that if they thought that they were going to try to kill him or sell him into slavery. But God's at work even in this. Think, growing up in a family where you're loved by your father but loathed by your brothers, you probably would tend to wonder, why God? Why do they hate me? Being stripped of your coat and tossed into a pit by your brothers, you may wonder, where in the world, God, are you at in this moment? 
Being sold into slavery to strangers and taken to a foreign land like Egypt. You may wonder, God, what did I do to deserve this? Why me? What's happening? Where are you? Well, let me show you where God is. In verses 5 through 12, God's hand can be seen by us in the dreams that Joseph had. They are clearly prophetic, but Joseph won't know this for sure until much later. He doesn't know what this means. Why he's just kind of sharing them. I don't know that he's rubbing it in their faces. He might just be innocently ignorant, but he doesn't seem to really fully comprehend what's happening. But one day he's going to look back and know God was at work even then before he ever saw the pit, before he ever got to Egypt. In verse 15, Joseph is wandering in Shechem, unable to find his brothers, and a mysterious man knows exactly where to find them. You say, wait, Pastor, how can that be God's hand? The brothers are going to sell him off into slavery. But remember, God wants him in Egypt. And if he has to go through slavery to get to Egypt, that's okay because Egypt is where he wants him because God's end game is the salvation of many, not the comfort of Joseph. God's hand was in that. Verses 25-28, the caravan passes by. And Judah's like, I've got an idea. We don't have to kill him or just leave him here to die. We can sell him to be a slave. That caravan didn't come by as an accident. That timing is providence. Helped keep Joseph alive and get him to Egypt. And then the Midianite, in verse 16, the Midianites sell him to an Egyptian named Potiphar, the captain of the guard, who just so happens to work for Pharaoh as a higher-up official. That's not accident. That's providence. The point is, God's name's not mentioned, but God's fingerprints are all over the chapter. But if you're Joseph going through this, you would not see that. No, this is clearly the Lord. You know, God is with me today as I lay beat up in this pit. God is with me now that I'm a slave. God is with me now that I'm in this foreign land. I can see exactly what God's... He didn't have a clue what God was doing. And we're in the first part of this life story, but God's fingerprints are already all over his life. And we need to know that we don't have to see God coming for him to be at work. And at times he's at work in ways that we cannot see or imagine. And at times it is years before we understand. And listen, there are times that it will be eternity before we will understand. You are not promised to understand everything in this life. We're not told we'll know exactly how it's going to work for our good. At times we may feel like God's not working. We may feel like life is on pause. We may feel like our life has gotten too far off the tracks. But our feelings do not trump God's sovereignty. Believer, there is no place that you can place your finger on the map of your life and not find God at work. No, no moment. He's working to form you, to mold you, to move you, to stir you, to encourage you, to convict you, or maybe at times even in spite of you, but He's at work. And even when you don't see it or feel it, God is always with His people and working for His purposes and our good. Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, In Him, in Christ, we have a pain and inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He describes God, Paul does, as him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, what does he mean by all things? I think he means all things, right? I mean, there's, well, maybe he means some things. No, he said, I think he could have said some things. I, I'm sure there's a Greek word for some, or sort of, or most. But he says all things because he wants us to, see, he wants us to live life with confidence and to know that God is at work in all things to bring about 
praise of His glory. But we, and we know that as a theological truth, but we take it for granted in daily living because we're humans and we're broken too. It's kind of like breathing, right? I don't think about breathing very often to you. Until you have trouble breathing, you won't think about it. We don't think about oxygen. We take oxygen for granted. If there was no oxygen in this room right now, we'd all be in trouble. So we just don't think about it. I don't sit around and go, breathe, breathe, breathe. Now, some of you will be doing that the rest of the service. But until you're having trouble breathing, you don't even think about it. We just, kinda, we just take it for granted. And we take God's presence and His work for granted in our lives many times. We forget because we can't always see Him, because we can't control Him. We forget that He's there and working even when we can't see or sense or feel. But look back over your life and you can know He's there working. Just like, you know, I can look back over my life and know oxygen was always there. How do I know that? Because I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still breathing. You know how you can look back, believer, and know that God was always working in your life? Because you sit in this room today and still love Jesus. Your spiritual life and your perseverance in the faith are evidence of God's hand still at work in your life. Because apart from that, you'd be far gone. I'd be far gone. So we need to rejoice in His unseen hand. Today, you may be experiencing the pain of rejection or the ridicule of others. or You may have family who have forsaken you, disappointed you, or hurt you. You may feel alone and far from feeling secure. You may be in the middle of chaos and feel like... You're an outcast or something totally different than any of that. But just because you know God and just because you love God and just because you follow the Lord Jesus, we need to know that we are not promised that we will not experience those things. This world is broken. And God is with us and He's working in us and for us, for His glory. But sometimes His hand is unseen by us. And sometimes things can get seem very quiet and God can seem silent. Sometimes life hurts. Sometimes the road is long. But we have a promise that God is with us. Even when His hand's unseen. We need to hang on to that. Number three, and maybe the most important, God's presence and work are most clearly seen in Jesus. See, the main thing Joseph does is what everything in the Old Testament mainly does. He points us ahead to Christ. You see, the reason Joseph would be sold to slavery, sent to Egypt and imprisoned, and then exalted to be Pharaoh's, at Pharaoh's right hand is to protect his family, who are God's people, from a coming famine that could have killed them all. It is through that family that the Messiah is going to come, as I mentioned, specifically through the line of his brother Judah. Through Judah would come David. Through David's line would come the Messiah. Jesus Christ is called what? The line of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah. The offspring of Abraham through whom the nations will be saved. Right? God is preserving the messianic line is what he's doing through all this mess in Joseph's life. Joseph's story is about Jesus. It's what it's about. It's in Jesus, God in the flesh, that God's presence, his presence and his work are most clearly seen. It is through his life and work that we can most clearly know God loves us and wants to work and is working in our lives. See, Bible teachers have pointed out over the years how Joseph's life mirrors and points ahead to Jesus. I want to show you some things just in chapter 37. Just chapter 37. Joseph is the beloved son of his father. Jesus in the New Testament we know is the beloved son of God. Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers but was rejected. Jesus was sent by his father and was rejected by his brothers. Us. 
Joseph's brothers hated the idea of the beloved son of their father ruling over them. To this day, humanity hates the idea of being ruled over by the Lord Jesus. And Joseph has his robes stripped and he's thrown into a pit and Jesus has his robes stripped and he's nailed to a cross. And Joseph was sold for silver by his brothers to the Ishmaelites and Jesus was sold out by Judas for silver to those that wanted to crucify him. That's just chapter 37. We haven't even gotten to the fact that Joseph is ultimately proven to be the righteous one whose suffering is going to save many. Which is a big grand pointer to the ultimate righteous one whose suffering is going to save many. All those who will believe. That's the main thing Joseph's story does. It, it focuses on Jesus. See, when we read the Old Testament, we read it in light of the New Testament. And we read it through the lens of Jesus. You can't interpret the Old Testament properly apart from Jesus. Cannot do it. Jesus said, it's about me. And he showed the disciples as he, after he was raised from the dead how all of it points to him. And even this points to Jesus. It's kind of like, you know, when you, you've ever seen those little pictures that you look at and you can't tell what it is. And people are like, don't you see the puppy? It's like a cloud. It looks like a blob. You stare at it a long time. You walk away. At some point, like, you see the puppy, right? Or whatever the thing is. And then you can't help but see the puppy. You're like, well, how did I not see the puppy? The puppy was always there. You're like, hey, do you see the puppy? No, I don't see the puppy. Staring at it for like, two days later, they come back. I see the puppy, right? And I can't look at it without seeing the puppy. And you, you just lock in your head. You can't help but see it now. And it's like that with Scripture. Once you come to faith in Jesus, and once you begin to read the Old Testament through the lens of looking for Jesus, you see him everywhere. And you can't help but see him. And you see him in the life of Joseph. And you see him in Isaiah 53. And over and over and over again, you see him in the animal sacrifices. And over and over again, you see Jesus, and you see Jesus, and you see Jesus. How does everybody not see this? That's what happens when the veil is removed. You come to faith in Christ and you begin to understand that the scriptures are about Jesus. And this story is, more, it's not primarily about us. It's about Jesus. I heard another pastor say this week, and I think rightly, that we tend to look at this story and stories like it and immediately relate to Joseph. But we're a lot more like the brothers. And before you can really relate to Joseph, you've got to relate to them. We're the ones who've been jealous and envious and at times hateful. We're in need of the one that came after Joseph, the one that's greater than Joseph, who is perfectly righteous to save us and make us into a people who walk with God. If you want to know God is with you, if you want to know God is working things for your good, it starts with trusting the righteous one who lived in your place a sinless life and who died Suffering the judgment and the wrath you and I deserve so that we can be saved. Paying for our sins. If you want to see God work in and through you, it starts with recognizing His presence and His work in Jesus Christ. That's still. And believer, if you're in a season where you feel like you can't see God working, where you don't, you don't feel like you feel His presence, the first thing that I would encourage anybody to do is look to Jesus. And to look to the cross and look at God's grand declaration of his love, and know God is working, and he loves you, and the cross is proof. Jesus is proof. He's proof enough. Romans 8, 31 and 32, the Apostle Paul says it this way, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give? What's Paul doing there? He 
He's saying, man, you look at the mess of your life and when you're hurting and when it hurts the most, he's saying, consider the fact that God didn't spare Jesus for you and tell me how he will not work in your life and even in this situation. Him who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? All things for your good, all things for his good. How is he not going to work if he's willing to give his son for you? So when we go through whatever it is we're going through, and sometimes they're tragic and horrible and things that are apart from God's grace, I don't know how anybody bears. The step one is look to Jesus. Because it is in the cross and it is in the work of Christ that we can most fully be assured when we don't see God's hand and we don't know where God is. We know, we know he's shown his love for us and his desire to work in and through our lives through the Lord.